Take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18, and we're actually only going to go through verse 10 today, not all the way through 14. God's Word uh, written for you today. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believed in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, or it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, would you please give life and light in our hearts where there is not light and life the way that we wish it to be. Would your spirit be pleased to work. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the, I guess, amusing parts of being a pastor is that I get the privilege of interacting with our favorite pet doctrines that emotionally feel so good like cotton candy, but have virtually no biblical uh, reference. In fact, actually, usually when we do have those doctrines are the ones that just kind of make us feel so warm and fuzzy on the inside, and uh, perhaps at best there might be a veiled misunderstanding of a very kind of nebulous verse that might be the basis for it, and we have one of those today, which if you know anything about me, I'm going to do my best to exterminate your beloved doctrine so that you learn to love the Bible correctly instead of what you think it says. So while you may have entered in with a guardian angel this morning, I hope you leave without, for it's a lesser doctrine than what we get here. Think, oh boy, that started out fun already. I've hurt your feelings. Some of you are already mad at me, and we've just started, and it's going to be a fun sermon. We get to this chapter. This chapter, I mean, they're going to be truthful. Chapter 18 in the book of Matthew is a doozy on so many levels. Uh, honestly, I threw the guardian angel out there to get you a little bit emotionally invested. That's the easy part of this passage. Uh, it's also the part of the passage that's the least emotionally demanding. This chapter is the kind of chapter that we really don't want to hear. 
It's the kind of chapter that explains to us uh, what God's kingdom is supposed to be like. And it's the kind of chapter that explains a kingdom that doesn't look the way that I perhaps might want it to look. Here we're going to deal with the question of the greatest. We've got church discipline coming up. That'll be fun. And forgiveness, that'll be fun. Two things that we don't like to do. But the matter at hand. It begins with a simple question, and a question that I guess kind of most of us, I think, as Christians today, we look at the question the disciples are asking here and kind of laugh at them a little bit. I mean, if we're honest, we kind of chuckle, like, why would they be asking who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Like, that that just seems to be asking for it, right? It just seems to be kind of really unbelievably cocky who in their right mind would ask a question like that. And really... There's a point to be said in that, but it it really shows a lack of understanding about how Jewish culture works. Jewish culture is an an, uh, honor-based society. It's actually far more Eastern than it is Western. Western culture is almost entirely based on merit. What have you done for me lately? Are you bringing something to the relationship? If, If you don't have something to offer me, I'm not interested in you. It's based on merit. Uh, you look at, uh, you know, all of our sports leagues built around merit. In theory, all of our educational systems built around merit. In theory, a, a culture that thrives on merit. Uh, Eastern cultures aren't built on merit. They're built on honor. They're built on reputation. Um, they're built on a reliance upon family names and family identities and dignity and respect. As a result, a question like who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean that much to us as as Americans because we have a pretty easy metric to evaluate that. Well, who's done the most? Who's done the most in the kingdom of God? And that's the person that's the greatest. But further, we would say, well, that's kind of laughable because, you know, why would you even ask that question at all? But in Jewish culture, it actually is a much more significant question because this is a question uh, that is so kind of intimately woven into the the fabric of their culture. I mean, like example, one of the ways uh, that when you went to a family meal, the seating arrangement was designed based on importance. Your average Jewish table was shaped kind of like a C, and the person that was most important sat to their, in the center with number two on one side, number three on the other side. Then you jump to this table with the next person, number four, then five, then six, then seven, then eight, then nine. You could tell exactly how important you were by where you sat. It's why the disciples are actually arguing about this exact same question the night that communion is instituted. Because they're getting ready to have a family meal and they're trying to figure out where they should sit. Who's more important than the other disciples? Further, this one's probably got a whole lot of emotional baggage because you got Peter, James, and John that have just uh, had the transfiguration just previously but aren't allowed to talk about it. So you know in the back of their head they're going, literally, I'm more important than you because I've seen Jesus and his glory. I, I should be higher on the totem pole. I should be higher in the pecking order. Certainly, I have to be greater than you. In fact, that's actually one of the the trademarks of an honor-based society, is that honor-based societies constantly express, make explicit, 
the hierarchy of who's important and who's not. I was trying to think of illustrations that we do this in America. We really don't have that many of them. But for those that were older in the room, you will remember the, the pecking order of who got to sit in the front seat in the car and then who got which back seat in the back. Where did the least important family member sit? By least important, I mean the one who was lowest in the authority chain. Right? They sat uh, in the far back behind the seats, you know, in the, in, in the back of the station wagon. And there was a pecking order. The next least important seat was the back middle because it was uncomfortable and you had the hump in the middle that your feet sat on and then the sides. But the really primo seat was the front seat, right? You knew it was really important. If you got to make the move into the front seat, you know, that was when things were really special. Uh, which is a really an amazing thing because you realize not all cultures work that way. Now, this is one of the fun ones we learned in uh, school. We're interacting with our South Korean brothers. Your, uh, Asia, uh, by and large, the most important seat is given in the back. So it's funny watching classmates try to show deference to each other because uh, all of the American guys were trying to make sure the Korean guys sat up front and immediately insulting them. And the Korean guys were automatically trying to make us sit in the back and insulting us. And it's this kind of just brilliant moment of uh, offending each other by trying to show honor to each other. I suspect that's probably a little bit more of what's behind the question here with the disciples, where it's, a, it's certainly not a, a holy question, but it's not maybe as a worst-case scenario of a question as you might guess. It's trying to figure out which of them is the bigger brother, so to speak, which is the one who gets uh, the fancier, uh, more important seat at a table or something in the midst of that. That's why, actually, interestingly, you get to see here that uh, they take this question to Jesus. Now, at the Last Supper, when it happens, Jesus overhears them and lights them up for it. But here, they're actually, I think, genuinely kind of curious. So they go to Jesus and say, well, Jesus, which of us actually gets the seat of honor? Which one of us is the oldest brother? Which one of us gets the most respect? Which one of us gets to ride in the front seat on the way home? Which one of us gets the place of honor and dignity? And you realize that that's a really important question. In fact, actually, I mean, it's a question you have to realize that parents all over the world have to teach their children at some point when they're growing up. Right? Fathers have to communicate to their children, guess what? Mother deserves more honor than you do. She will always deserve more honor than you do. And if you try to take her honor, I will wreck you, right? You get disciplined. That's not okay. Mom gets the place of honor in the home far more than the children, or should at least. So I think there's a legitimate question here, and then we have to go into Jesus' answer. Now, the answer here is one of these great passages that uh, we grossly misunderstand, like really spectacularly mis, misapply. Uh, and again, largely because of the cultural difference uh, of the day in which we live. We live in a culture that worships children. You might not have come to realize this, we absolutely worship children in a, in a grossly unhealthy way. Back when I was in youth ministry, I remember reading all of the, the percentages of expendable family income that was given to teenagers and why all of the marketing companies now target teenagers because they know if they can get your children, they will get all of your money, uh, right? We, we live in a nation that worships youth. We absolutely do. Problem is, that's not the culture in which this is being written, 
In fact, actually, the culture in which this is being written, young children were treated in the same category as the mentally challenged and the infirm. And I'm not kidding, like we have rabbis that actually, when they talk about the the, the categories of people that offer nothing to society, the medically infirm, the mentally challenged, and young children. That was the trifecta that they talked about. So understand the culture kind of gap here is really big because we love kids, we worship kids, we, we always want them around, we're, we're really excited about that. That is not the world in which we're entering into in the text. The world in which we're entering into, children were, um, we'll say not valued. We'll, we'll be generous with that and acknowledge that it wasn't the case there. And so Jesus begins to explain to them, to teach them, okay, if we're going to have a conversation about what's important in the kingdom of God, let's have a conversation about children. Verse 2, he he calls to him a child. I love this. You uh, might not catch this if you don't read the Gospels in large chunks. Jesus always had children around him, as best we can tell. His ministry was, as best we can tell, again, family ministry. Certainly, he had some occasions that were for adults only. You can't get around that fact. There are certainly some occasions of his ministry where kids were not welcome at all. Um, Can't get around that fact. But a large part of his ministry, he has children around, uh, just kind of there. And interestingly here, I I love how it just said, like, while they're talking to him, he's just looking around the kind of crowd around him, and there's a young child. This word here is not the word that would have applied to a a preteen or something like that. It's a very young child. And he calls to him, just a young child that's right there in his midst right there amongst them and says, all right, now let's, let's have a teachable moment. You're asking what you think is a legitimate question. I'm going to show you the respect to give you a legitimate answer. And I'm going to give you his answer, kind of paraphrases, point number one right here I want you to pay attention to. Jesus doesn't need another king. He already is one. All right, that's, that's going to be our kind of summary paraphrase of his answer. Jesus doesn't need another king. He already is one. Truly, I say to you, verse 3, he answers, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become like children. Now again, for us, this has such a a warm feeling to it, right? We've heard this passage and read it so many times and we think, oh, Jesus loves children. He does love children. Oh, Jesus had children around all the time. He did have children around him often. That's not the emotional punch of this sentence. The emotional punch of this sentence would be uh, something much more to the effect today of, of, of having Jesus look at us and say, unless you intentionally become like someone who is extremely medically, mentally challenged, a person who has a different category, someone who's given up their dignity, perhaps a third category of someone that was so excessively ugly by how God has made them that nobody wants to be in their midst, unless you intentionally embrace that identity, You're not welcome in the kingdom of heaven. You see why I was a little worried about the sermon. Because already we're like emotionally a little bit of going, oh, I'm really uncomfortable with this fact that there's categories of people that uh, aren't really, you know, we don't see them as quite as important to us. Sad reality, that is how you think. It's just a matter of me figuring out which categories you put 
right? Which people you put in which categories. But the sad reality is we all have those categories of people that we think are wrongfully so less important. And what Jesus is answering to his disciples is what is the marker of a Christian? Is, uh, the marker of a Christian is not someone who's trying to climb up the pyramid of power. The marker of a Christian is someone who's trying to climb down the pyramid of power. Not someone who's, who's trying to climb the corporate ladder, the church ladder, to, to get into cr- increasingly significant roles, to get into increasingly significant places where they will find themselves to be treated as more important, to be viewed as more significant, to be viewed as more valuable, to be viewed as more intelligent, more beautiful, more lovely, more whatever it is that is not the mark of a Christian. The mark of a Christian is someone who's climbing down. The one who is free and willing to give up their dignity, to give up their honor, to give up their respect, to give up the things that would make them look special in the the eyes of the world, the things that would make them look important. I remember a number of years ago, one of my my friends had a, a... a gentleman come preach at his church, he had Ian Murray come preach, who's uh, one of the greatest historians alive. Um, brilliant man. Uh, Scott, uh, Scotsman, brilliant pastor. Like I said, one of really the great minds of a generation, uh, certainly in terms of church history. And uh, they're getting ready to leave to go to the, the sermon that, or speech that Dr. Murray was getting ready to give. And my friend couldn't find him. <laughs> Well, it's Dr. Murray in the house. Where's Dr. Murray? And so, finally, you know, wandering through the house looking for Dr. Murray, finally finds him three minutes before they have to walk out the door. 75, 80-year-old man on his hands and knees playing house with the daughter in the nursery. Cutting up, being silly, you know, being just goofy with the kids. One of the most respectable, commendable, most honorable men Got his tie loose, jacket off, hanging out on the floor of the nursery, cutting up with the kids. Being willing to freely treat his honor and his dignity and his respect with an open hand. Providentially, I ran into the same man a number of years prior and didn't actually even recognize him and never actually introduced himself as who he was. Carried on a full conversation with the man before I realized I was talking to one of the great historians in church history. Never embarrassed me. Never made me feel like a fool because I didn't recognize this is one of the guys. I own like 20 of his books. I've read like half of them. I should know who he was. No idea. You see, the reality is what Jesus is getting at is uh, the heart of Christianity is that once our identity is grounded in who Jesus is, we don't have to have our identity grounded in who we are. I cannot overstate the significance of this reality. For God's people, our identity isn't grounded in who we are. It's not grounded, there's really two categories. It's not grounded in what you do, and it's not grounded in who you know. That's the reality of the world is the way that sin works in the human heart is that almost all humans, uh, we're, we're designed to try to find identity, to try to find meaning, to try to find purpose. And almost all humans either find their identity, their meaning, and their value in what they do or who they know. 
right? For men, oftentimes, not all men, but oftentimes it's easy for us to find our meaning and our value in what we do, our jobs. We spend so many hours a week there, and sometimes that job can feel a little bit like combat, and we can be victorious, and we can uh, find a sense of victory and a sense of importance and a sense of meaning. It's why oftentimes, uh, particularly for young mothers, uh, it can be such a difficult thing to be a young mom because your identity is slowly morphing into these children and your sense of meaning and sense of value is uh, connected to these children and then eventually they go off to college and what happens to these moms is that so many of them, it's like their very identity is ripped from them and they lost their sense of meaning, their sense of importance, their sense of value. Because, uh, honestly, what we're doing there is we're trying to find our value in the world. Good things, family, work, good things designed by God. It's interesting for the younger generations, we're actually watching a societal movement where that identity is being grounded in our friends more than our families. For those who are in the 30, 32 and under range, roughly, uh, the number one source of meaning for that, category, that group of people is their friends. It's far replaced their families. It's a really interesting shift in American history. Interestingly, Jesus is kind of undoing that though, isn't he? He's saying, look, your identity is not grounded in what you've done. It's not grounded in who you know. It's not grounded in, in anything that's going to help you climb the ladder. You're not going to be able to feel more important about yourself. Because of what you do. It doesn't work that way. In fact, actually, he gives the clarification here in verse 4. <clears throat> Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who intentionally embraces the respect level of the least respected person in society. To intentionally be comfortable with a lack of respect. A humility, a lack of self-possession, a lack of self-absorption. Friends, this is such a hard point for me to even kind of get across in a sermon because I, out of all the sermons I've preached in the last year, this might be the the single point that I think falls the furthest from how we tend to think as Americans. Like out of everything I've talked about, and I don't tend to shy away from difficult things, at least I don't feel like I do. But this reality, because it is so much of who we are that you see so many of these kind of cultural movements that we're experiencing today are byproducts of the idea that I'm important in who I am. That me, me, the individual that I deserve respect and I deserve honor and I deserve dignity and I deserve everything because I'm special because it's all about me. It's all about me. And the reality, interestingly, Jesus is turning that up on his head to say, look, it's not about you. It's never been about you. We don't need more Christians that are self-possessed and self-absorbed. We have way too many of that anyways. In fact, Jesus values humility. He doesn't need another king. He doesn't need great people. When Jesus picks teams, he picks the worst of the teams on purpose. That's why he picked us. 
Right? For those that have followed the NFL draft this week, it's been a big deal, right? Uh, dreams are made in just a moment. One single phone call. That the lowest salary paid in the NFL this year will be $660,000 for the lowest salary in the NFL this year. It's the minimum league salary. So if a man gets a phone call this week to get drafted, $660,000 right there in his salary. It's a pretty good phone call, right? And you have all the grades of the first round, the second round, third round, all the way down the seventh round. The first round should be the shoe-in, uh, excellent all-stars and kind of leisure all the way down. And then there's all the leftovers afterwards that may or may not make a team. Friends, we're worse than the leftovers. God chose us on purpose and he wants us to act like it. Let's not pretend that we're Jesus. He's already doing that job. Well, there's a byproduct of this self-absorption, right? The the byproduct of self-absorption and and self-importance is that it it skews how we think about our own actions. The more that you think you're the center of the universe and the more that you think you're the important thing and the more that you think about you, the more you will find you get irritated with everybody else because the things they do are terrible and the less you're irritated with yourself because the things you do aren't that bad. In fact, actually, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're irritated at everybody else because they're doing bad things and you're not irritated at yourself, you're almost certainly drinking from the glass of narcissism. That is self-absorption at its core. Because what it is, is it's a willingness to kind of endure myself and to be judgmental and critical with others. And I see Jesus makes the transition here. I think the connection is exactly where he's going. Look, verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this person who is the most lowly, the least respected, the person who has absolutely zero dignity, the person who is comfortable treating, being treated like uh, you know, the, 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 the worst of the worst. Well, verse 5, what does he change into? Well, whoever receives a child like this, uh, they're receiving me. But... This is where he's ultimately building. The one who causes even one of these little ones to sin, well, that person is under great judgment. Interestingly, again, that word uh, causes to sin, that was the scandalized word that Jesus used about himself in that uh, previous section where he said he paid the temple tax so that he wouldn't scandalize uh, even the Jews. He didn't want to cause them to sin. Here, Jesus then applies it to us to say, look, these people that get no respect... These people who are uh, the worst of the worst, these people that are an embarrassment to society, these people that you overlook, the ones that you don't consider as valuable, those that you ignore, that you, you, you just brush over. To cause those to sin is a problem. In fact, actually, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck. And we know this exact word, what it is, is uh, the way that they ground uh, their grain at the time and made their flowers is they had a giant stone that sat on the bottom. They had a giant stone that sat on top. It had a hole in the center that you would put your grain in, and then a donkey would drag it in a circle. And so as the donkey walked in a circle, you could dump grain in the top, and it would just get ground up, and the, you know, the fine flour would get pushed out the sides. Jesus is using an illustration to say it would be better if somebody took that gigantic stone off the top that is a donkey is required to move it, to take that giant stone off and to take the hole and shove it over your head and then chuck you out in the middle of the ocean. Friends, that is a graphic example from the Lord Jesus. 
really gruesome. It's about to get worse, but he's saying, look, it, it is such a big deal. Sin is such a big deal. And in fact, actually, not just sin, but these other saints, these other people that are made in God's image, these people that are overlooked, those people that are undervalued, these people that are ignored, the shadows inside the church, these people are so important to Jesus that their sin matters. And your sin matters. If we're going to kind of put it again as a concept we could catch. Jesus doesn't need a king. He's already got one. He already is one. Jesus doesn't need people that are casual with sin. Considering that sin cost him his life. It is a a terribly unchristian thing to interact with sin in such a way that it is treated as just lazy and, and lackadaisical, like it's no big deal. Like it's just, it's just tacky, it's just sin, it's not a big deal. And again, friends, we live in a world that doesn't value holiness anymore, that doesn't contemplate sin anymore, and this is a reality where we live. You know, honestly, friends, some of you, I know, I know, I know this, some of you, you struggle because your Christianity seems so dry And you're like, I don't know what the problem is. It just seems so dry. And I'm going to tell you right now, the reason it's so dry is because you don't believe you sin. And because you don't believe you sin, you don't need a Savior. And because you don't need a Savior, you don't appreciate anyone but yourself. And you wonder why your Christianity is dry. Jesus is going to give an, an application. Uh, now, this is a, a medical, metaphorical picture here. This is not uh, prescriptive. He's not giving directions on how to deal with sin. He's giving us an illustration. You want to know how bad sin is? Verses 8 and 9, it's better that if your hand or foot causes you to sin, just cut it off. Because it's better to live life as a cripple that doesn't have sin than to live life as a, a whole able-bodied person that does sin. Again, remember that Jewish categories, what were those categories of the three categories of person that were useless in society? Medically invalids, that's this category, cripples. Mentally challenged and young children. Jesus is having very awkward social discussion here to say, look, it's better if you actually literally made yourself a medical invalid than it would be to deal with sin and keep it close. Now, we know this is an illustration because we, we know that, one, sin doesn't reside in the body this way. Sin is, is an aspect of our soul. It's not an aspect of our flesh. It has byproducts in our flesh, but it, it's not an aspect of our flesh. In fact, actually, uh, one of the uh, interesting early church fathers took this passage very seriously, um, struggled with his uh, lust terribly, and so he um, acted on that. Right? He um, uh, made himself a eunuch. And found out that the problem was that even when his uh, biology went away, the temptation didn't. And the sin didn't. He just lost the ability to ever act on it. Uh, because he began to realize that, you know, the, the problem with sin is not my flesh. It's not my body. It's not my hand. It's not my foot. It's not my eye. The problem is my soul. And the point that Jesus is making is, is rather, uh, this is how big of a deal sin is. I like both of my feet. I like both of my feet being attached. I like being able to walk. I like being able to run sometimes. I like being able to drive my car. I don't like the idea of losing my feet. 
but do I like my sin or hate my sin enough for it to even impact the inconveniences of my body? Let me think about it just wait. Just, just pause for a moment. If somebody offered you, and you knew it was a real deal, somebody offered you the transaction of, would you be, give up your right hand, or lefties, your left hand, would you be willing to give up your dominant hand if you wouldn't sin again for the next year? How many people in church would show up with two hands next week? I'm going to be honest with you, I think most of us would show up with two hands. Because I don't think a year would be worth it for most of us. It would be an interesting kind of game to see how many years it would take. How about two years? Would you give up your hand for two years? How about three? Four? Five? Ten? I think if it was ten years, I think most of us would probably come in with one hand. But you see, you realize what we're doing right there is we're bargaining with our sin because we just don't believe it's that bad. We really just don't believe it's that bad. And the result of this, again, is a, a relationship where we don't value our Savior. That's the byproduct. Because sin isn't a big deal, our Savior isn't a big deal, and we don't get excited about him. Verse 10, he changes gears again and now puts it back into the application of a very specific set of people. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. All right, so now here we come into this kind of third application is that uh, if we're not supposed to be the, the kind of king of the mountain, if we're supposed to be working down the power structure, and if we're serious about dealing with sin, those two kind of realities should intersect to produce a people that love the unlovable. To love those that are overlooked, to love those that are, again, the shadows of the church, to love those that are not special. Right? I mean, again, it's hard to think of categories today because we live in a world that hates using categories of any kind, and the second you use a category, it's automatically, you know, um, some sort of prejudice of some kind. I'm still going to do it anyways, but I acknowledge it's a problem. If we had like the smelliest, stinkiest homeless guy come in, categorically, how many of us would have a problem with that? Right? He comes and sits right in the middle of the most crowded section of the church. How many people get up and move? How many families have a conversation about him at lunch? How many people don't hear a word of the sermon because they're trying not to get, you know, hung up on the smell? How much judgment do we then give in our minds and in our hearts? How much do we tear into that guy privately? See that you do not despise anyone of these overlooked, rejected, unimportant people. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is an excellent translation, right? The ESV gets this spot on right. The possessive pronoun is significant. And Jesus makes a point as to why you, you shouldn't overlook these people. Because these people, even as messy as they are, as smelly as they are, 
as gross as they are, as unimportant as they are, as stuck up as they are, as unpleasant as they are, as whatever as they are, if they are a child of God, they are constantly served by the angels of God. Now, very briefly, theology of angels. Remember, angels are God's servants. As best description we know, they're some sort of creatures of fire. They're designed to exhibit his glory and to reflect it. As best we can understand, they do have the ability to change form in some fashion. And we know that they are God's holy messengers. And as best we can tell, they are his messengers in both directions. Meaning they take the truths of heaven and they carry that good news to earth. And as best we can tell, the good news of earth they carry back to the saints in heaven. Right? That's a fun thought to think about. That the saints who have gone before us, Abraham, Moses, Adam and Eve, all those saints that have gone before, or your dear loved ones, I think are probably still getting updates today uh, from the angels themselves. But the angels' primary ministry is to safeguard the church. So that when God says that he keeps his promise to take care of his people, he takes care of his people through his angels. Now, I'm I'm glad he doesn't fully explain to us what that means. But I can guarantee you a substantial portion of your life has been spent in front of the angels themselves. You just haven't seen them. You haven't known. And it's because of that relationship that you you should never show disrespect to one of God's people. Because even the angels themselves serve that person. These creatures of glory and fire serve these people. Listen to what Calvin says about it, right? This is Calvin's quote, uh, brilliant and lovely Calvin, so precise. It would be strange indeed that a mortal man should despise... Or treat as of no account those whom God holds in such high esteem. He proves this love from the fact that angels who are ministers of their salvation enjoy the intimate presence of God. Yet I do not think that he intended merely to show what honor God confers to them by appointing angels to be their guardians this. But likewise to threaten those that despise them. As if he had said that it is no light matter to despise those who have angels for their companions and friends. I love that. Calvin's description of the people of God are people that have angels as their companions and friends. The problem is that relationship is a bit one-sided right now. That's marvelous to think about. You ever think about that? Because I'm prepping for these sermons and wrestling through these passages and panicking as to how in the world are we going to apply this in a way that actually fits us. But in some fashion that I don't understand, the angels are my friends and they're ministering to me because the Lord has told them to. And after I die, I get to meet them and get to thank them. Why should I not despise any of God's people? Because the angels are their friends too. And the angels are the most spectacular pieces of God's creation 
apart from humanity ourselves. We're the only thing that are in his image. They're in the image of his glory in a different way. So what do we do with this? I mean, it seems to be a little bit kind of disjointed, and I'm sure that's my fault, not the passages. The reality of this is that this challenges us to live in a way that we we don't really want to live. Friends, I'll be honest with you, again, as a pastor having to interact in American society and American culture and counseling American people, there's no thing that brings me more trepidation, that brings me more um, pause, reflection, and concern than an element of ministry that's going to transgress somebody's feeling of self-importance. I mean, just being completely honest. To transgress somebody's feeling of self-importance in this day and age is the ultimate sin. It's why this evening's sermon is going to be even harder because it's one particular example of our own self-importance. Friends, I, I think it is an appropriate thing and should be that we spend at least a little bit time, a little bit of time contemplating how that thinking has infected us. Because here's the reality is it, it would be like a fish saying that they live in the sea, but they don't drink the water. This sense of self-importance is part of the fallen nature. It's also part of the land in which we live. It would be a bit silly for us to act like it hasn't infected us. It would be silly for me to say, well, it's infected all of you, but it's never touched me. And the sad reality is is that is the voice of a person who believes in their own (laughs) self-importance. To say that you're the problem, not me. To say that you have problems, but not me. To say that if only Jesus had picked more people like me, well, we'd be better off then, wouldn't we? I think this has been one of the great lessons that we've seen written out through the COVID season. Remember how we, we confessed that uh, really challenging part of the Westminster Confession? Where it says that God does leave his children to their own temptations for a season to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and the deceitfulness of their hearts. Friends, I think this is one of the deceits that has been put on display in the last 15 months. I think the church was full of herself before COVID started, but I think COVID has written it in bold letters, huge typeset, to show us so that we can read easily from the book that we are full of ourselves. That we think our way is the right way. We think our feelings are the right feelings and we think that everybody else that disagrees is stupid. And in doing so, we immediately mark ourselves as the problem of Matthew chapter 18. And immediately in doing so, friends, what we've done is we've tried to set ourselves up as a savior instead of Jesus. And your reality is, I want you to have a robust, healthy spiritual life. 
I want you to delight in Jesus. I know your delight in Jesus and your delight in self are mutually exclusive. The delight in self poisons the other. It would be a good thing for us to contemplate how it might be that we could exterminate that self-absorption that we all live in. And friends, I'm going to just give you just a couple of quick applications and a couple of ways to do that. One is uh, we should be ministering to those that are overlooked in our midst. Uh, I'm going to go tell you right now, I know it's challenging in the new building. I know it's challenging in COVID. And I know it's challenging by the fact that we've grown by more than a quarter in the last uh, year. It should be impossible to make it through these doors and not have somebody talk to us. It should be impossible. We're not that big. Yet, I know it happens. And I know it happens more than a monthly basis where people make it in, they become a shadow in the church, they become overlooked, and we become insecure, and so we don't reach out to them. That should, that should never happen. Two, at minimum, our children's ministry should be having to get rid of volunteers because we have too many. Now, granted, I'd said we do live in a culture that worships children, and that is absolutely true until we need you to volunteer, and then everybody stops. It should never be the reality that it is. Friends, your question should, it should never be, should I work in the children's ministry? The question should always be, how should I work in the children's ministry? Whether you're 18 or 80 or anywhere in between, how can I work in the children's ministry? Even if it's just signing up to pray for the kids on a daily basis, our CE committee should have to turn away volunteers. We've never had that problem, ever. I can guarantee that one. We've never had that problem. And then lastly, when you come into the body of Christ, it probably should not be on the front of our minds as to how I can get my needs met. It probably shouldn't be on the front of our minds as to what it, it can be about me. And I always want you to communicate to me, particularly if there's problems that I'm unaware of. I always want to hear that. But maybe it might not be quite, need to be quite so on the front of our minds what our preferences are. Right? Again, that whole grumbling thing that kind of shows up. It's so easy for us to think that you are entitled to my opinion and that I'm entitled to yours. Because what are we doing there? We're, we're saying, look, my way is the right way. It's the good way. It's the high way. It's the best way. Instead of being willing to be treated as the overlooked, the ignored, and the unimportant. I'll tell a brief story as we close of a dear saint who worshiped in this body years and years ago. Some of you will still remember him, Mr. Snow. Uh, Mr. Snow was um, a holy man. He was also about a thousand years old when I started pastoring this church. Um, good man, and very old. Mr. Snow was, I think, the most faithful member we had. Came to worship, came to Sunday school. He was the perfect illustration of a man that was faithful in worship. And I think I had pastored here for about a year. Uh, on the way out of church or something, I was talking to him, and I said, Mr. Snow, it's so lovely to see you. 
you know, it was really great to have you in church today. And he goes, Michael, it's so good to be here. I've never heard a word you said, but it was so nice to be with the people of God. And I went, what? And he goes, I can't hear you at all. Man, it was deaf. My tone of voice, the pitch that I, I speak in, it hit that, that dead zone in his ear. He could not hear a word I could say. And he faithfully came, and it took him over a year before he talked to me about it. Because, and, and why did he not? He just didn't think he was that important. Now, we worked to have it fixed as soon as we could, because he's that important to me. But he wasn't that important to himself. C- catch that, right? Mr. Snow, filled with Jesus, did not believe he was that important to himself. It was one of the most humble sentences I've ever heard in my entire life. And as a young 28, 29-year-old pastor at that point, it broke my head that somebody could be so faithful and so humble and so meek and lowly of heart and still so faithful. Might it be that God would make us a little bit more like Mr. Snow and his lovely wife that I never got to meet, but I can't wait to meet in heaven? Might it be a little bit less of us a little bit more of Jesus. Father, we thank you for passages like this that that strain us and challenge us. They certainly make it hard for me to preach. Thank you that in that we see our weakness. And in our weakness, would Christ be strong? We ask for his sake. Amen.